Welcome to another episode of View from the Bridge. Chelsea finished March unbeaten, albeit with a little bit of disappointment after that two-all draw with Everton. Joe Felix and Kai Havertz got on the score sheet once again, as Graham Potter's side couldn't hold on to a win after a few little errors. Today, I'm joined by Adam Newsom uh, once again. Um, how are you doing, Adam? Good, thank you, mate. Good to have you back. Yes, very happy to be back, although... You know, maybe supporters will want me to stay away a little bit longer after Chelsea's improved form in March. But, um, <laughs> you know, uh, Bobby obviously missed the game at the weekend as well. Uh, so perhaps he's the real link to the win to the wins of late. Uh, exactly. But yeah, so I guess we start off with that game, Adam. And you know, what what were your initial thoughts? I know I've seen on social media a lot about those errors that kind of cost Chelsea three points and a few people questioning Graham Potter's substitutions as well. Yeah, we'll probably talk about that a little bit more uh, in a bit. Overall, I thought it was a largely encouraging performance. Uh, we've seen some really drab games at Stamford Bridge where it's been difficult to really work out how Chelsea are trying to attack. I thought against Everton on, on Saturday there was a lot more of a threat posed uh, for much of the game. Enzo Fernandez was arguably probably his most influential game in an attacking perspective um, across 90 minutes. Obviously, he had that wonderful pass against Leicester, but uh, he was really instrumental in how Chelsea played and was switching the ball really nicely. Um, I think it was one of his passes that was intercepted in the actual build-up to, to Jao Felix's opener. Um, so, yeah, it, it was encouraging for, for large spells. Of course, the frustrating thing is that Chelsea conceded two really soft goals um, and that's ultimately cost them. And it's just checked the momentum that was building. Um, I spoke last week on, on the podcast about how I felt it was really important to win this game to keep that, that sort of positivity going to send everybody into the international break happy and, and confident and really building up to to that Real Madrid quarterfinal um, tie in the Champions League. But to concede twice to Everton and I guess to concede in the 89th minute is just deflated things a little bit. Um, you know, we shouldn't forget that, as you said, Chelsea are unbeaten in four matches. Three of those have been wins. The overarching trajectory is is of improvement, but it is difficult to to really go into this international break with that same uh, positivity when you have drawn at home to a team that is fighting for their lives. And I guess when we talk about these errors, it's not the first time this season that perhaps Chelsea's have shot themselves in the foot a little bit. Um, likes of the weak defender, and I think we spoke on the podcast before that Thomas Tuchel highlighted very early in the season against the likes of Southampton and stuff. Um, was that the kind of impression you got again? It was just people not kind of committing to their jobs or is it just harder to explain on that? And was there any frustration from Graham Potter after the match because of that? I think the first goal is obviously conceded from a set piece and and Graham Potter highlighted, or, or it was put to him in, in the pre-match press conference about Everton's threat from set pieces, and he mentioned that it's something that had, um, had sort of showed up in the data they'd done that you know under Sean Dyche, Everton had improved in that area, and they're quite a big team, and ultimately Chelsea actually aren't that that big a team. Um, 
I mean, aside from the centre backs, really, you know, the midfield is Enzo and Kovacic. They're not not towering presences. Um, you got Pulisic up front. Joe Felix Haberts is obviously is obviously tall, but Greece is 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 obviously very strong, but isn't maybe the, the tallest. And Ben Chilwell, again, you haven't got a lot of height. I mean, even Wesley Fofana is not an absolutely towering centre back. So when you're going up against a team like like Everton that do have that, it's it's always a risk. I think actually that's what Graham Potter's substitutions, especially as the second half went on, he was trying to add that height to the team. He brought on Carney Chukwemeka. He brought on Trevor Chalaber. Um, you know, these are guys who are taller than than the people they replaced. So I do think Potter was aware of that threat. The frustrating thing I would I would probably say is the second goal Chelsea conceded is it's such a soft goal. Um, to begin with, I mean, the ball comes through. Kepper probably could have just let it run into his area and pick it up, but instead he's outside his area and then for, for, for reasons, sort of kicks it up the pitch to nobody. Um, whether or not Koulibaly could have given him an angle when he got the ball is, is another point of debate, and then the ball comes back. And ultimately, Ellis Sims doesn't have to do too much. Or, or to be fair, Kalidou Koulibaly goes in so aggressively to try and win that ball, he kind of he gives Ellis Sims one option, which is to knock it past him, and that is the option that he needed to take in that moment. So he almost made Ellis Sims mind up for him. Um, and then the finish was you can debate whether or not Kepa should have saved it. Maybe he could have, you know, I'm not a goalkeeper expert, so I'm not gonna gonna sort of be too too critical because I uh, when that ball is close to you, it's not always easy, and I do appreciate that, but. It was. I thought Graham Potter. You know, he called the goals cheap. Um, he said that. Um, he said he basically said we can't concede these type of goals and expect to win games in the Premier League. Which look, Graham Potter's never going to be Antonio Conte after a defeat. He's never going to come out and spend ten minutes ranting and raving and criticizing everybody in in the club. But I thought it was just a little. It was noteworthy that he probably for the first time was a bit critical of the players and and, and how they played because usually he's more focused on looking at positives and, and trying to look at where there's areas of improvement. So maybe reading between the lines a little bit, I think he was frustrated with the manner of the goals that they conceded, but um, but he's never going to come out and say that, that he was absolutely disappointed with players because it's not his style. Yeah, very much so. And Obviously, you alluded to, to the substitutes Potter made there and the introduction of height to the team. Um, I think a lot of people are perhaps a little bit more concerned about the likes of Mikhailo Mudrik and Nani Madueke not getting on the pitch. Obviously, Christian Pulic, Pulisic came back into the team and started. Um, what, do you, what do you make of the situation of these wingers? Obviously, they came in in January, still very young. I think we've seen some bright sparks from both of them, but perhaps not a, a complete performance yet. It, are they still feeling their way into this squad? As I guess it's easy to forget because it's been the case for so long, but this is a very big squad to, to find your way into. I'm not as concerned as a lot of people are. I think the reality of the Jao Felix loan is that he's going to play pretty much every game. Kai Havertz is the one... I mean, he obviously, he doesn't call himself a number nine, but is that sort of that stature, has that presence? And 
I appreciate Pierre Mikrobamiang is around, but you know he hasn't played now for the best part of a month and a half uh, from the start. I know he got about two minutes at Tottenham, but ten minutes at Tottenham, sorry. Um, so he's not really a factor. So I think you have Havertz in there, and then it, you've kind of got one position free. Um, and Raheem Sterling, prior to his latest sort of knock, was was playing well, so I think he deserved to start. Um, I mean, Mudrick and, um, and Madueke they're young lads they're in a new you know they're in a new club a new style of football obviously for Mudrick he's in a country he's never lived in before still adapting and and learning to a new language I don't think it's a huge issue personally I can understand the frustration that some have and and look at Mudrick from what we've seen when he was at Shakhtar, was a hugely exciting player and a very dynamic one and and the sort of player supporters will easily uh, engage with because of, of what he does on the pitch. But I, I've said this before, I think the very best clubs or the best or the most well-run clubs, I should say, do tend to do this with new signings. They don't just chuck them straight in unless unless they feel it's it's completely right for the player. They they do ease them in. They let them adapt. They let them have that period. And we will see Madrid in the team next season. I've got no doubt about that. We will see Madueke start to have a bigger role as well. And that's fine, in my opinion, at the moment. They will grow into this team. I can understand the the argument that now I don't I'm gonna to say top four is, is probably over. Well it is over. In the season you can just let it play out now and, and focus on next season. But I think that's easier said than done with the Champions League still in play because you will have players who will not just want to be completely marginalised because they will want to still play in those games, whether or not uh, they will is is up to Graham Potter, but um, but yeah, I, I say I'm not overly concerned right now about either either situation. I think they'll get some game time between now and the end of May, and I think look at preseason is where they'll really probably be integrated fully. And, and next season you'll have two players who are fully acclimatized, fully up to speed, fully fit, um, and it's then up to Potter or. I was going to say, well, whoever's in charge, but that might be a bit fatalist at this point. But let's say Graham Potter um, to to work with the players and, and go from there, and, and hopefully they're in a good space. I, I guess on that point, were you one of the people who were perhaps surprised to see Pulisic start? No, because I think we, as a collective, expected Everton to sit deep, to play as a low block, to use set pieces and, and try and counter-attack. And ultimately, I think... Christian Pulisic, you can you can criticise him for for certain aspects of his game, but I think when one area he's very good at is actually in the penalty area. I think he has good penalty box instincts. I think he can finish well from 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 areas within the box, and that he scored a great goal from from outside the box, which was ultimately uh, ruled out for offside in the build up. But I don't think Mudrick quite has that same sort of understanding of space in the penalty area I, I'm not sure his finishing is quite as reliable just yet so yeah it is look, it's, it's horses for courses isn't it I mean against Everton we saw Benoit Badia-Shield come back in because he brought that height that Mark Kukurea doesn't and, and we spoke about earlier Christian Pulisic has that penalty box now that um, that maybe Mikhailo Mudrik doesn't but after the international break when when Liverpool come to Stamford Bridge in, in a more open game Maybe you'll see Pulisic start. Uh, sorry, maybe you'll see Mudrick start ahead of Pulisic because we saw in that sort of cameo at Anfield what he can do against a team that plays a high line and that there is space to exploit. So, 
as you say, Graham Potter's got a big squad. He's got a lot of different players with different profiles and, and different strengths. And as long as he's got that, I think he can probably work to each game and, and try and tailor the team to, 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 to each opponent. Yeah, I guess one area where he has been pretty, I guess, both consistent and persistent is um, in Kai Havertz's selection up front. I think March, you would generally consider a pretty good month for him. Uh, is it three goals in as many games, even if a couple have come via the penalty spot? He's looked, I guess, a little bit more settled and more of a threat of late. And uh, I think probably us and a lot of the wider fan base have maybe been if not critical, thought that his role in the four position has been a little bit problematic for getting the best out of him on the team, but things have looked a little bit more positive of late. Yeah, he, his performance against Borussia Dortmund um, a couple of weeks back is is definitely up there as one of his best in a Chelsea shirt. He he built on that by scoring um, away at Leicester, got on the score sheet again, which... You know, you, this has always been the argument. You want your, your forward players to take penalties because it keeps that feeling of goal scoring alive. It gives them that opportunity. Obviously, you have to win the penalties to, to, to do that. But yeah, he's in a he's in a good moment and he's playing he's playing well in a more withdrawn role. He hasn't been the, the lead the sort of the the, the spearhead of the attack um, in the last few games. That's been different players. It, it was uh, Raheem Sterling against Dortmund. It was Madrid against Leicester, and it was actually João Felix um, at the weekend. So he's Cabez isn't having to lead the line, and I think that is to his benefit. How that then shapes up into next season when you've got Christopher and Gilbert away as well um, is probably a big decision that Chelsea are going to have to take in the summer. That we know there's going to be some players who move on inevitably, but um, but yeah, this position off the right not quite at the point of the attack, giving a bit more freedom to roam, giving a bit more freedom to drop if he wants to, seems to be bringing out the best of him. Yeah, and good to see, and I guess positive for the rest of the season. I think another positive, although he did not get on the pitch, was to see N'Golo Kante on the bench. Um, his return, I guess, has been a long time coming, very carefully managed, and... Obviously, it seems like that is going to continue to be the case during the international break. He's going to be in training a lot by the sounds of things with the potential for a in-house friendly. Um, I guess just a word on how much of a positive it will be to eventually have Kante, especially with that Champions League match around the corner, um, if he can prove his fitness by then. And if you want to say anything on you know this preparation time that Chelsea now have to to get a number of injured players back to fitness potentially. Yeah, in that respect, it's the international break is, is well-timed because it should give Mason Mount the opportunity to overcome his sort of pelvic issue. Raheem Sterling's not with England because of a hamstring issue. He should be back. Wesley Fofana, obviously, he's pulled out the France squad. He should be back. And then got N'Golo Kante. To have Kante back just in the matchday squad was a lift, I think, for everybody. Uh, it was very noticeable. Um, or notable, more accurately, when he came out to undertake his warm-up, his first warm-up uh, in the first half, there was it wasn't quite a standing ovation, but there was a genuine ripple all the way around Stamford Bridge of applause just to see N'Golo Kante come out and do a few stretches um, in the warm-up. That is the sort of level of of faith I think the Chelsea fans have in Kante. That, that you know everybody knows his quality. 
and how Chelsea manage him over the next two to three weeks is going to be really important. Um, as you say, Graham Potter has indicated that they'll be looking to do an internal match to just start his process of getting some some match fitness. Of course, an internal match is, isn't going to be quite the same intensity as a Premier League game. I don't think you'll see any players going in hard and N'Golo Kante to win the ball back or anything like that in this in this internal game. They'll all be told to probably treat him with absolute kid gloves. But um, you'd like to think he, he gets some more minutes against Villa, gets a few more against Liverpool. Uh, I can't remember who it is before the Real Madrid game. Wolves, I think it might be. Um, at home, maybe you try and get sort of an hour at that point out of him if he's ready. And then you've got Real Madrid at the Bernabeu. It feels very, very timely to have him back. And if he is something, if he's back to something as as close to his best, he does transform this Chelsea side. Um, we know that. We saw that in the run to the 2021 Champions League. He was absolutely incredible in much of, of that knockout stage. Um, so if Chelsea can get him back to that, then who knows what's possible. Uh, but the important thing, I guess, from, from Kante's perspective is to take it slowly, is to not push himself. There's there's this feeling that he is in good shape, maybe the best shape he's been in for quite a long time because he hasn't he hasn't been rushed back. He has, you know, the process has been very, very well managed. We'll just see where he is when we get when he gets back in the pitch, back into the sort of intensity of Premier League football, we'll get a better read on, on quite where Kante is in terms of his overall fitness. Because when you're out for seven months. It's inevitable you lose that that little sharpness, that edge that you do gain from playing week in, week out. And as brilliant as Angola Kante is and as naturally fit a guy as he is, it's very difficult to step back into the Premier League and be at your absolute best from, from day one after seven months out. Yeah, and I think there is also a question of, of like you say, how how Chelsea use them. Um, obviously, initially there's going to be introducing them back and building up minutes, and I think Potter's shown a tendency to be pretty cautious with all players when returning back from injury. Um, they, they've rarely been rushed back into that start eleven. But I guess when you look at Kante's age profile and his kind of tendency to pick up injuries of late, anyways. Do you think that Kante is now a player you kind of, once he is fit, plug in and use in those biggest of games? Or, or do you think he's a player that needs the minutes to, you know, produce that form so so often? I think especially for the remainder of this season, you, you pick and choose when you use him. I think that would be only logical. Chelsea have some very big games still to play. This season, you know, they, they've got the Real Madrid quarterfinal tie, but they've got Liverpool at home. They've got Manchester United away, Arsenal away, Manchester City away. They are big games and we'll see quite where Chelsea are at that point in the Premier League. I mean, it's, it's potentially not much riding on each of them, but they are still matches that you'd want to win. They're the high-profile games that you can build confidence from. So, yes, I think there has to be an element of picking and choosing when you use him. Um I guess the big question for Graham Potter is is how you structure that midfield with with Kante, Enzo, and Kovacic because Enzo and Kovacic have played well together um, in the last few weeks. Enzo is pretty much a non-negotiable at this point. He started, I think, every single game um, since he joined. Kovacic has had his own injury issues this year. Maybe you want to rotate one of you know him and Kante a lot to, to make sure both get to the end of the season in, in good health. Um, 
but I can guarantee you that when Real Madrid come around, Kovacic, if if you are rotating him and Kante, will want to play in that game, um, and, and that's understandable. How how Potter handles that will be will be tricky. Um, and to be fair, I, it's probably just broadening it out. I don't think it's only going to be. I don't think it's only going to be Kante who Chelsea do this with in terms of picking and choosing games. I think probably Reese James is going to be carefully managed. I think he already has been. You know, we saw him play against Dortmund, and then he didn't play against Leicester. He was back in at the weekend. We'll see how much game time he gets with with England. Um, maybe they do it with Raheem Sterling as well because he's been in and out a lot over the last few weeks. Um, and maybe Wesley Fofana because he's had his injury issues this year. So. There may be a certain element of, of rotation just to make sure every player gets to the end of the season in an OK position. And then hopefully a bit of time off, no no international tournament this summer, um, no club tournament this summer, which you know is, is in the pipeline, of course, with the, the new Club World Cup format is going to be coming in at some point. Um, but hopefully every player can get away, have some actual downtime to relax and refresh and recharge and, you know, actually be human beings and have a holiday. Um, and then come pre-season, we'll see where everybody is and hopefully Chelsea are in a good position and, and Graham Potter, on the basis he's still in charge, of course, uh, can really get his ideas across and, and build this Chelsea squad in more of his own image Um that being said, there's going to be quite a lot of turnover, I suspect, anyway, in the summer again. Yeah, and just to stick on Kante for one more bit, it's, it's very easy to forget that Potter has never had Kante to call upon in his time, I think. Um, and you talked about how he might fit in. And I just wonder, do you think Potter will stick with like a two in midfield when Kante comes back, or will we maybe see a three? And I don't know, I guess... You know, from a fan perspective, maybe it's hard not just to have the mouth water and the prospect of Kante and, and Enzo playing together. And will that release Enzo to, you know, release more of those glorious passes that we've seen um, that have resulted in goals? I'm going to be very honest. I don't know what you do. Because if you went to a midfield three with Kante, Kovacic and Enzo, obviously that's a hugely talented midfield, but then you only got, in theory, two in attack which could be Felix and Havertz. But then, you know, we've already discussed Madueke and, and Madrid, and you're already taking out one attacking position then if, you, if you're doing a three-man midfield. Um, we've seen Kante at his best in that double six uh, or in a midfield two. When Leicester won the title, he obviously played in the fourth in the middle of a two-man midfield with Danny Drinkwater. When Chelsea won the title with, with Antonio Conte, it was, it was Kante alongside Matic. When Chelsea won the Champions League, it was Kante alongside Jorginho. So you can probably get the best out of Kante in a midfield two. As I said, Enzo's a non-negotiable. So you do think that the way forward, if Kante is fit, is, is an Enzo and, and Kante midfield. And there's a lot to like about that. I think they would complement each other quite well. Um, I don't know if you'd probably want... an. Longer term, you maybe do want a, a more naturally City midfielder if Chelsea move away from a back three, a, a proper number six. And then you can let Kante and Enzo do their thing. But look, on the base of this season, looking at the squad, yeah, I think stay with the three at the back, stay with the, the double six, bring in Kante when he's up to speed. And as harsh as it is on Mateo Kovacic, as I said, an Enzo-Kante partnership is very, very appealing. And I think 
could do very, very well um, in the Champions League if, big if, Kante is fully up to speed at that point. Right, and I guess that is the moment to to move on to the Champions League. Um, we've obviously referenced that Real Madrid game, um, and it, it's it's one that is familiar for Chelsea supporters and reporters alike from recent seasons. Obviously, the match on route to winning the competition um, in twenty twenty one, very good Chelsea performances on the way through to that, and also last season perhaps two of the most mesmerizing games for very different reasons across both legs um what was your initial reaction when the name came out of the hat thank god it's not man city was my actual first reaction um largely because as we were saying before we started we've been up to the etihad twice already this season i watched chelsea get played around with we'll have to go back up to the etihad again at the end of the season I didn't fancy a fourth trip. Um, that being said, obviously, could still play out in the semi-finals if both teams was to get there. But let's focus on Real Madrid for now. Um, yeah, it, it's not an easy draw, of course. Uh, I think Chelsea will take confidence from, as you referenced, playing them on, on route to winning the Champions League in 2021. Last season's tie between them was interesting because I think, obviously... The, the first leg at Stamford Bridge, Chelsea shot themselves in the foot. Um, there was that very high-profile mistake between between Eddie Mendy and Rudiger to make it three-one on, on first leg. Chelsea were good for that second half, but it, the, the tie was done. And then obviously at the Bernabeu, they were brilliant for seventy-eight odd minutes and went three 0 up. And then Luka Modric produced one of the most outrageous passes I've ever seen live at a match. And in in those moments. Uh, when Real Madrid seemed to come up clutch. I don't uh, quite understand how Real Madrid keep doing it in the Champions League because you go back last season and they won they won the, the, the trophy, of course. But as I said, against Chelsea, they were probably the better side for across the tie for about an hour of the tie, um, but still went through. Against Manchester City, they all they were dead and buried, and then scored twice in stoppage time to then take it to extra time and go through. So they have these decisive sort of half an hour spells and games where they seem to go in, into the fifth gear and score a goal or score two goals, and then the tie is completely swung in their favour, and then and then they've got the class to see it out. So yeah, it'll be very interesting to see how Chelsea perform against them I think it'll be a really good game um, I don't think they're quite at the level they are were at last season but I do think Vinicius Junior has gone up a level um, and how he competes against Rhys James will be very interesting because they both said very nice things about each other over the past few months um, I think Reese said he was one of the most skillful players or most dangerous players he's gone up against and I think Vinicius Junior has reciprocated with that and saying Reese is one of the best defenders he's gone up against. So, um, so yeah, that will be a very key battle. Um, and obviously, there's the return of Antonio Rudiger uh, and Eden Hazard, uh, which is kind of an afterthought, which is a shame. But yeah, Antonio Rudiger's return will be will be intriguing. Thibaut Courtois, we know what we know what reception Thibaut Courtois will get on his return to Stamford Bridge. I'm intrigued to see what reception Antonio Rudiger will get 
I think it will be probably positive. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, it's 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 a match where several sort of former Chelsea players will be back um, in some capacity. Yeah, I think I think as much of the crowd's reaction to Antonio Rudiger, I'm kind of intrigued by anything Antonio Rudiger does on the pitch um, on his return to Stamford Bridge. Oh, no, he'll be doing stuff. He'll be doing something. Uh, do you remember when Luis Suarez went back to Anfield a few years ago in Barcelona and was completely horrible and Liverpool fans were like, ah, oh, this is why everyone... <laughs> It'll be interesting to see if Chelsea fans get to that point with Rudiger. Yeah, yeah, especially as he runs away somewhere looking like he's doing high knees in a warm-up or something like that. It's... Uh... It'll be very interesting and very entertaining, I'm sure. Um, I guess one of the other points to take away from the clash is that uh, on this occasion, the away trip will be first. Um, I guess Chelsea have proved that they can go there and do something against Real Madrid. Do you think it's an advantage to have that um, home leg in the second leg? Maybe if, if away goals still counted, yes. Now I'm not so sure it's... It's a hugely beneficial thing to have because ultimately you, and to be fair, you could have had this with the, uh, with the weight goals, but the important thing for Chelsea is not to lose that tie and and to have something to play for at Stamford Bridge. It's all well and good having the second leg at Stamford Bridge, but you still need to be in the tie to actually maximise that and, and take advantage. So, so, yeah, as long as Chelsea goes to the Bernabeu and produce a professional performance and look, if they lose... It can happen it's Real Madrid but don't lose three goals don't lose four goals because at that point it, it means nothing having a second leg at home so yeah as long as Chelsea can go to the Bernabeu and do a professional job get away with a, a, a brilliant if they can get away with a win if you can take a draw take the draw if you're gonna if, if it's a defeat make sure it's a one goal defeat where you can turn it around at home because that that then brings the second leg at home into play because otherwise, I say, if, you, if you're three goals down, it means nothing. Yeah, I, th- I think now Chelsea at this stage where, you know, after the, the international break, it feels like the business end of the season of sorts. Um, obviously, there was a little bit of hype ahead of the draw with uh, Graham Potter speaking uh, to the, to the <laughs> fan, fans group ahead of it. And, you know, e- even that adds a tinge of excitement to the Champions League, I think. And I think what's really highlighted to me this week is how much this Real Madrid game, of course, Chelsea underdogs, there's pressure in, in, in these high-profile games, but how much it means for Chelsea's season. Um, I think you said it before, top four is kind of all but gone. Um, and I, I guess, how, how will the squ- squad take this? It was like everything riding on these two legs, as it would usually, but it just feels really reinforced now. Or, as you also noted before, is it a positive because... The squad's got something to be invested in. Players who perhaps are leaving in the summer maybe don't care whether they qualify for the Champions League next season. But Champions League success, no matter how far away it is, how much of an underdog Chelsea are, is something tangible to hang on to and for something for, you know, the the carrot that Potter can dangle ahead of everybody. I think it's probably a little bit of both, to be honest. You make a very good point. It does keep players invested. It is... Chelsea are five games away effectively from from winning a trophy. Um, if that doesn't get you invested, then nothing will. At throwing around Madrid, and and you know, it's, it's easy to get. It's going to be easy for every single player to get up for that game. There will be absolutely no excuse if Chelsea go to the Bernabeu and produce a limp, lifeless, insipid performance. There'll be no excuse for that. 
and and Chelsea fans won't accept it if if it happens. You know, if you can't raise yourself for Madrid away, when can you raise yourself? So, as you say, Chelsea players should should step up for that one and should be emotionally engaged and and be at their best level. The flip side is, of course, as, as you say, if the season boils down to these two games, there is a lot of pressure on those games, and there is a lot of, of, of tension on them because you don't want to, you don't want the season to end early April. You want it to, to keep going. So, yeah, it's not an easy one in that respect for for players to to sort of cope with it. But as I said, it's Real Madrid. It's the Champions League quarterfinals. It's 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 when you turn up. Um, and hopefully, you know, they turn up and it produce a performance good enough to go through. Um, and then you deal with whatever's waiting for you. Uh, it'll be one of Bayern or City. So either way, it won't be easy. But uh, but to slip into Grand Potter mode, you focus on Real Madrid for now. You don't look ahead at all. Um, and yeah, you see, you see where you are. I think it's May 18th, isn't it? The, uh, sorry, April 18th, the second leg. So um That'll be a good night at Stamford Bridge, and hopefully Chelsea can uh, can produce a performance and get through on that night. Yeah, and just to, to end off on that Champions League point, as as you know, their Graham Potter does always say nothing but focused on the next game. He, he's very adamant about that. Do you think you know over this next fortnight he he does let his thoughts stray to Real Madrid a little bit, and you know because of how busy that schedule is in early April, I guess they want to start putting the preparation now. Um, for the game while they've still got some time. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Potter is taking some time off this week, he said, um, after the game on Saturday. You know, he's going to have a bit of time to with the family to just relax and, and recharge a little bit, which is very sensible. Um, but it would be it would be silly not to use his time. Of course, you, you manage to speak. You, you're only focused on the next game, etc., etc. And the next game is Aston Villa. And, and then it's Liverpool. Um, the game is, I say, it's against Wolves. In theory, an easier game, but Molyneux um, can be quite a, a fierce place to go. They are still battling for their lives. So I don't think it'll be a simple game, but I guess it would probably depend on how Villa and Liverpool have gone. Look, if Chelsea have lost both those games, it'll be pretty bleak to be completely honest with you but it would very much cement the fact there's nothing to really play for in the Premier League even the Europa League would probably be optimistic at that point so you could very much put all your eggs in the Champions League basket and and use walls to, to rotate so without trying to sit on the fence I think it probably depends on how on how the games after the international break go that Villa game the Liverpool game both of them at home if you take six points it still feels really, 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 really unlikely that you're going to get into the top four, but at least there's something to cling on to there and maybe you work accordingly. If you don't win those two games, then you see how you play out against Wolves and, and it would, I guess, make sense to start really focusing on the Champions League and putting all your eggs in that basket. Yeah, and I guess while the Champions League is obviously the stuff dreams are made of, uh, the Premier League, I guess, offers something tangible to to kind of see how the rest of the season can play out. Uh, 11 games left, I think, is it seven of them against teams above Chelsea in the table, maybe? Um, Chelsea obviously have that record of having not earned three points against any of those teams above them in the table. Um, they are obviously... 
not doing so well in, in just in terms of the rankings of London teams, bottom of the three teams in West London. So there's still a lot to prove before the end of the season for Chelsea and Graham Potter. And, you know, obviously the teams above them have provided a, a stern test so far, but maybe because you can earn three points against them, maybe some six-pointers, Chelsea can progress up the table a little bit, even if it's not for that fourth place. Oh, yes, a rare use of six-pointer in the uh, <laughs> league. Um, yeah, Chelsea, as you say, have a pretty dismal record against sides uh, in the top half of the table this season. Um, I don't think they've beaten any of them uh, from memory. Um, and that is something that needs to change. They're only, you know, they're a point behind, point behind uh, Fulham, four points behind Brentford. Four, I mean, Brighton coming to Stamford Bridge in the middle of those Real Madrid games is going to be interesting because obviously that was probably the lowest moment for Graham Potter going back to the Amex and then losing four one. And the 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 glee that Brighton fans celebrated that day with was was very much, uh, I think, rankled with Potter to an extent. I remember his press conference afterwards, he was a bit, um, a bit spiky about the, the reception he got. So yeah, I think there'll probably be an element of him wanting to set the record straight. But as I say, that Brighton game comes in the middle of the two Real Madrid fixtures. So maybe not all the focus will be completely on it. But, uh, but yeah, it's not an easy end to the season, Chelsea have. April and May is, is going to be difficult. And... You'd like to think Chelsea can pick up some positive results along the way. You'd like to think they can maybe beat one of the big sides away from home. Just to give you some a little bit more positivity, a little bit more confidence going into next season because we saw how, how bleak it did get in February. We saw how toxic it got amongst large sections of the fan base. Chelsea being booed off. People shouting at Graham Potter to resign social media element of it was as well was was as as say as dark as it could probably be you don't really want it to get to that stage again if Chelsea are to then go into next season looking to build on, on what they've achieved this. So yeah it's important that, that the Chelsea pick up results in April and May. Of course as we've just discussed Champions League is probably gonna have to be the focus but you don't want to slip too far down in the Premier League because that will only breed negativity and lead to more questions about Potter and the squad, about the ownership. Um, you don't you, you don't want all those raising their head again because it was really 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 difficult to get out of that that sort of negative environment, um, which Chelsea just about managed to do, I think maybe. Um, I mean, you know, they drew it the weekend and there were calls for Potter to be sacked by social media fans. So maybe they're not entirely out of that. But um, but yeah, they, I don't want them to, to sort of slip back into the real, into the bad place, to be completely honest. Yeah, and you know, wins certainly make watching football a little bit more fun. So if nothing else, it will make it a much more enjoyable end to the season than some of the stretches that have came so far and... Without wanting to slip too much into cliche, last game of the season, Newcastle could be a final in itself. Who knows for what? But you know, but there's European spots around, aren't there? So could be for Newcastle very much uh, the game, which those with a discerning uh, ear for accents will know that it might mean a bit more to you. Uh, <laughs> 
but it should be a good one. It should be a good one. Um, hopefully, with something on the line for both teams. Um, hopefully, hopefully. But yeah, I guess unless there's anything else you would like to touch upon, Adam, we'll end things there for today. No, we'll leave it there. Thank you very much. Cool. And thank you once again for joining us, Adam, and all you guys listening wherever you may be doing so. Be sure to leave a review, especially if it's a positive one, and you know, subscribe. Hope you enjoyed listening to us. And yeah, thanks for joining us once again. And we'll probably be back next week ready to preview that Aston Villa game and the rest of the season once again. So thank you very much for joining us and speak next time.